They say presidential election years are filled with news. In 2016, we had the Cavs win the championship, the Indians in the World Series, and the RNC in Cleveland. This year, we got COVID-19, social unrest, a $60 million state house bribery scandal, and now a presidential debate in Cleveland. You be the judge. 2020, 2016. The one thing about 2020 is none of this is good news. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and we have a full house today with my colleagues Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnston, and Chris Warnowski. Glad to have everybody back together. We got a lot to talk about. Let's begin. Is Cleveland really adding to its history of hosting big political debates with the first meeting of Donald Trump and Joe Biden in two months? Jane Cahoon, I'm kind of mind boggled that they're bringing this to Cleveland because <laughs> I don't see this as ending up as a good news story for, for, for the city, which we'll talk about in a minute. But what happened? This came out of nowhere. Yeah, we just we found out in the afternoon yesterday that the first 2020 presidential debate is going to happen in Cleveland on September 29th, hosted by Case Western Reserve and the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, apparently, they stepped forward after the University of Notre Dame withdrew because they had concerns about the coronavirus and, and the logistics. But they're going to have it at this Sheila and Eric Sampson Pavilion, which is part of the clinic's health education campus. And it's like 477,000 square feet. Uh, so it's a, it's a big place. But the thing is, we don't know yet whether whether there's even going to be an audience for this. So just don't have a, a clear idea of whether this is going to be a massive thing or not. Well, I, I, I think you can predict it's going to be a massive thing. Given the social unrest in this country, I think it's a gigantic beacon to protesters. Hey, come to Cleveland. I didn't think we I thought we were pretty much through the, the that kind of possible violence. But Come on, the first meeting of Donald Trump and Joe Biden in Cleveland, I think you're going to see protests. And given how Cleveland did with the May 30th riot, don't have a lot of confidence this ends well. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, in all these previous events that have come to Cleveland, it was a chance to show off the city. This is a little bit different. I mean, if this becomes Portland-like protests and clashes with police, not good for Cleveland. That pavilion you're talking about, it's a gleaming Laura Johnston, shiny building <laughs> on, Chester, on Chester, but, you know, a couple of blocks away is abject poverty. The national media will not miss this, that the Cleveland Clinic is this great set of beautiful buildings in the middle of poverty. On one side, you have Central. On the other side, you have Huff. So, so when they come into Cleveland and they set up their satellite trucks, the satellite trucks won't all fit close to that building, I bet they'll be parked over in the, in the squalid part of town and they won't miss it. I, I'm stunned about it, but, but overall you still have COVID, you know, they, right, all the people right. that come, whether crowds come or not, the national and international media will flock to Cleveland. The politicos will flock to Cleveland. They're all going to be coming into our city from all over the place. I'm sure they'll be observing the travel advisory where you're not supposed you, you have to quarantine for 14 days if you come from a state with a uh, positivity rate of 15 percent or more. So well, I'm sure everybody's going to be 
you know, well, but whether that, that's still in effect, who knows? But, but that's a great know, point because there's no way Mike DeWine's going to enforce that on the politicos coming into town. He's not going to tell the journalist, yeah, if you're going to cover this, you have to come two weeks early. So, <laughs> so that means we could have a big injection of COVID-19 here. I'm curious about how this came together and we're going to, we're going to be pursuing those questions. Did like, did Frank Jackson get any notice that this thing was coming to his city? He's charged with keeping the peace, keeping things safe. How much how much say did he have in this? I mean, look, Notre Dame didn't want it. The University of Michigan didn't want it. I mean, they know something, man. What, you know, what, what right, did the Cleveland right. Clinic and Case Western Reserve University think in here? Well, interestingly, I guess the clinic's been handling the, um, you know, they've been advising the debates already on measures to, to take and so forth. The, they're the health security advisor for the Commission on Presidential Debates, and they are the ones that are going to be controlling the audience size and the distance between seats and, and sanitation and all that. But, uh, you know, Emily Bamforth talked to a doctor yesterday, an infectious disease specialist and a professor of medicine at the University of California. And he said, this could have all the features of a COVID horror story, because, <laughs> you know, aside from, you know, all the, it being indoors and, and a possible crowd, it's going to be high emotion. And, you know, what happens when people scream and shout, you know, they spew all kinds of virus germs and so forth. I but, know, like this is Laura Johnston. I'm thinking, are they going to have like a, a plastic shield up in between the candidates? Because you know how they <laughs> can intimidate each other. And like in past, they've been allowed to walk around. I mean, how are they going to, I guess they're going to have to social distance on the stage. Yeah. And they're I, not going to shake hands, I don't think. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the past, cities competed for these kinds of events that they'd have to raise money to bring them. I wonder if that happened here. It's almost the opposite. Who will yeah. take us? We'll pay you. I just, I, I, I would love to know the backstory of how this conversation <laughs> took place. This is Chris Warnowski. Does anybody on this podcast, was their reaction, oh, this is such a great thing for our city? Like, <laughs> mine was, whoa, like, oh my God. Like, we just need to add one more thing <laughs> right. to the news cycle right now. Mine was like another day in the pandemic, another major breaking news story. Yes, at like four o'clock. Uh, uh, the thing is, uh, yeah. you know, the, the, the eyes of the nation are going to be on us because this is the first meeting between Biden and Trump. And so however this goes, it's going to be the, the stakes are high. Let me just say the stakes are high on covid. The stakes are high politically. The stakes are high for the protesters. It, it, this is it's going to be a story. And we have two months. It's what, two months from tomorrow? Yeah, I think it's two months from tomorrow. Lots of time to, to plan for it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did the Cleveland Clinic move up in the annual hospital rankings? And is its heart center number one for the 26th straight year? Laura Johnston, you keep thinking some year just because for variety, they'll lose their standing as the best heart center in the nation. But man, they just hold on to that because they're so good at it. What, uh, what happened with the overall ranking? Yeah, they are back to number two in the country after the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. They were number two in 2018. So they've skipped over a couple of the top five, uh, include Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, New York Presbyterian Hospital, 
and UCLA Medical Center. So it has actually been in the top five for the last 22 years. So it's got a long streak going. And this is the U.S. News and World Report rankings that come out every year. They compare more than 4,500 medical centers across the United States in 16 specialties and 10 procedures and conditions. So in 12 of these 16 specialties, they use anal- they analyze data for performance measures, um, structure, process, and outcomes. So that's their their scheme for that. And then the four other specialties are based on expert opinions. So out of those 16, the clinic earned national rankings in 14 of those specialties. So um, that's pretty impressive. Do any of our other hospitals around here rank? Yeah, actually. So the the U.S. News provides localized rankings of all 50 states and 200 metro areas. So Cleveland's among 13 metro areas listed in Ohio. University hospitals, uh, their Cleveland Medical Center ranked third in Ohio behind the clinic and Ohio State University's Wexner Medical Center. Hillcrest Hospital, which is a clinic hospital, ranked fourth. The Cleveland Clinic Fairview is fifth. And Cleveland Clinic Akron General finished seventh. Okay, well, Cleveland Clinic really in many ways puts Cleveland on the map. It's known internationally, and it continues with its quality to maintain its high rankings. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How far back in time is the FBI going in its work to root out corruption in the bailout of First Energy's nuclear plants? Jane Cahoon, this was a bit of a jaw dropper yesterday when Andrew Tobias, using a records request, got hold of the FBI subpoena. What did it show us? Well, it showed they're going back to before Larry Householder became House Speaker again. The uh, subpoena was issued on July 20th, the day before the feds arrested Householder. It was issued to the Ohio House. And in addition to seeking records and communication, communications on House Bill 6, you know, the nuclear bailout bill that Householder rammed through, they, they want records on three bills that were introduced in 2017 that were basically previous iterations of House Bill 6, but they failed to, to progress through the, through the legislature. They, you know, this didn't get any movement until Householder became Speaker. Pete Crest did a real nice telling of all of the efforts First Energy put into getting this bailout because they were rejected over and over again because a lot of people think this is just bad policy. Uh, and finally, they got it through with what the Fed say was $60 billion mm-hmm. in bribes. It was nice that the CEO came out yesterday after claiming his company did nothing unethical and said, well, I, I didn't mean that everybody and everything they did was ethical. I'm just saying that our company, basically, <laughs> our policy is to be ethical. Good to know. Uh, but but it's it's a little bit of a surprise that they're they're, they're going back that far because it makes you think they know something that that maybe First Energy didn't just start paying the money when Householder was started up, that maybe there was some money floating around down there before. Lots of politics watchers in Columbus say First Energy money has driven the energy agenda for years. Right. Unless they're just, they just want to contrast the, the processes here. But um, just interestingly, two of these 2017 bills were sponsored by a Republican from suburban Akron near near First Energy's corporate headquarters. That's Anthony DeVitas. And the other was co-sponsored by Senators uh, Senator John Eklund of Geauga County and, and at the time then Senator Frank LaRose of Hudson, who's, who's the uh, Republican Secretary of State now. But none of those people have been accused of anything um, or, or anything. And LaRose's oh. spokeswoman said, you know, he was behind it at the time because – he supported like an all of the above energy strategy for for Ohio and 
and didn't want, you know, a major employer to lose thousands of jobs. Well, and you could argue each of them had constituents that that would benefit. I mean, Eklund, Jaga County probably has nuclear plant workers, the Akron guys. So there's, it makes a little bit more sense. It's just curious that the feds want to see that stuff, that they're looking at it because, you know, look, think about it. All of a sudden overnight, when householder starts to come up, $60 million becomes available. I mean, it does raise questions about how much might have been spent before. Laura, what were you going to say? Laura Johnson? I was going to say the same thing. It makes a lot more sense for representatives from Akron and Hudson um, and the areas that employ, you know, a lot of people work for First Energy than it does a guy from Appalachia. Yeah, it still gets back to the question of, why should Ohioans provide a billion dollars to protect 1,500 jobs? I mean, it's like, God, just pay them. It would be so much cheaper just to pay those people rather than pay billion dollars plus to prop up nearly obsolete plants. Well, it'll be interesting. We also have a request in for those records, right, Jane? Uh, Of course. That's we're really looking forward to getting those. Yeah, it'll be fun to, to see what Andrew makes of that. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and the Clean Dealer. Do we have a budding motorcycle gang war in the offing in Cleveland after a high-profile killing? Chris Renaski, that headline kind of jumped off our site yesterday <laughs> when you have two fairly well-known motorcycle gangs clashing in the suburbs. What's that about? So... um First things first, uh, there there was a, a fight between these two uh, motorcycle gangs that ended with one member with a stab wound and another dead. So um, this was this was not a great scene uh, down in Valley View at, at this gas station. Um, and the the gangs that are involved in this are called the Mongols and the Hell's Angels, which I'm sure people are familiar with if they um, remember Altamont or you know the lore of the 1960s and and Hunter S. Thompson's book. But um, the the incident happened about nine o'clock on Saturday uh, in the evening near the gas pumps outside of a shell on Granger and Canal Roads. And uh, according to BCI, the a man stabbed a rival biker at the gas station and a member of the rival biker gang shot and killed the man who did the stabbing. The, the man who died was identified as 53-year-old John Fuller. And honestly, police have not really said much more beyond that. It's it's uh, they've released pretty basic information. We're hoping to sort of loosen some uh, additional detail additional details about this today. Uh, Adam Freese is going to continue to follow up on this. Yeah, I talked um, to Adam a little bit yesterday, and and he was looking into whether there was some kind of previous conflict involving one of the girlfriends of the bikers or something, but. But but which which is why I asked the question, do we have a budding war? If there was a precipitating incident and this is the retaliation, you know, that's how these things can start to mushroom. It's a bit scary. It just depends on what they're what they're doing. I, I you know, I have no real sense of of whether they're the either of these organizations have like sort of deep tendrils into our you know, drug trade and, and crime in this, in this area, you know, we, you see that more sort of in rural suburban. And, and so that, that might sort of explain why this happened in Valley View, but 
But, you know, this isn't an everyday kind of story in Northeast Ohio. Well, it just adds adds to 2020. We have plague, we have corruption, we have social unrest, and now we might have a motorcycle gang war. What's going on here? here? Man, that's just not, let's not hire the Hells Angels for the uh, the presidential. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is Cleveland City Council working to stop Cleveland kids from drinking so much soda and sugar? There's been a lot of steps by Cleveland City Council to try and raise the health of people. We have a food desert in many neighborhoods in Cleveland. People can't get the nutrition they need. This was a pretty big step, Laura Johnston, to try and change that. Yeah, the idea is to focus on kids' meals. Uh, This legislation, uh, which passed a committee on Monday, would require restaurants to offer healthy options, basically milk, water, and juice, as the default option of a beverage included in the price of a kid's meal. So parents could still buy sugary drinks like soda, pop. I don't know why I said soda. It's totally pop to me. But the default for restaurants is their kids' meals would be water, sparkling water, the the milk, the 100% fruit juices. And that could be approved as soon as Wednesday um, when the full council is scheduled to meet. And then it could be in effect six months after it passes. You called it soda because that's the appropriate (laughs) term. And I included it in the question. None of this pop nonsense. But so... So the default, if I bought a kid's meal, would be something healthier. Although I was surprised to see that 100% fruit juice was one of the, the yeah. options because, you know. It's most, just sugar. Yeah, that's pure sugar. I mean, people really have pulled back from apple juice and orange juice because despite what we were told in the 70s, it's really not healthy for you. Um, no. I, I was a little bit surprised that 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 was an and they're saying fruit juice with no sweeteners it's like well, what are you gonna do put sugar in orange juice I mean, that'd be yeah. awful so uh well it'll be interesting to see i can't imagine frank jackson wouldn't sign this this is uh, right. a bid for health and it doesn't stop parents from getting the soda and other sugary drinks and this i'm, I'm just not sure though how much things this will actually change i mean you can go to mcdonald's and get a happy meal now and you can get your milk or your chocolate milk. Now that's the default, but you can still order your kid's Fanta, right? And so, I mean, I, I love the idea. Kids apparently drink a bathtub worth of sugary drinks every year, which was a really great uh, um, visual that Bob Higgs had in his story. But until you like take away that option, I I just don't know how many people are going to change their minds just because it's the default. Well, except that they'll have to go out of their way to get it. We'll have to see. It's a it's a step, and uh, you got to salute. I think Blaine Griffin was the councilman that was. Yeah, anything that helps. Let's get toward that. That's great. So this week in the CLE, what will it take to get Larry Householder, who was charged with racketeering in a sixty million dollar first energy bribery scheme, removed as Ohio Speaker of the House? Jane Cahoon, I was kind of surprised when he immediately said he's not resigning because it's not in the end it won't be his choice. But we had Jeremy Pelzer take a look at what it takes exactly to eject him, both in the long run and possibly in the short term. What what will it take? Well, the, the easiest way to get him out of there, but the most time consuming way is that if he's convicted, you know, a, a felon can't hold public office. But since he isn't convicted at this point and, and if it does happen, that won't happen for a while. There's some other ways that they could. Uh, that his fellow House members could get him out of office. And it just depends on whether they want to simply remove him as speaker or just expel him totally. But they do have these 
backup rules, the House does, for, for when their own rules don't, don't cover it. And they could simply have a vote and choose a new speaker if they want to just get rid of him as speaker. That would automatically eject him from that position. And, and that's that a majority would, vote? That's yeah, not... it would take a simple majority. But you might remember when the big you know contest between Householder and Ryan Smith happened, it took them like 11 ballots because if, if no candidate gets a majority, if they have like multiple candidates, then they've got to go like 10 rounds. And then on the 11th round, it's just the person who, who gets the most votes. Well, could but they, then, could they vote just to get him out without yes, putting somebody yes. else in first? Yes, they could. So they would have to, you know, have a formal vote and then, they could vote him out. So, so it's been a week since this news broke. Why the hell haven't they? <laughs> well, apparently they're crazy. having a little, the House Republicans are having a little secret meeting today to, to kind of decide what to do. So we should know more about that. But, you know, they will have to call a formal session to, to get this done. All right. What if they had a conscience, though, and said, we don't want him on this body, that the evidence against him is so strong that he did dastardly deeds. We want him out of here completely. The Constitution addresses what they do with that, right? There is an article that Dave Yost had suggested that, that they could use. It's Article 2, Section 6 of the Ohio Constitution, and that allows the House to punish its members for disorderly conduct by a two-thirds majority vote. But according to these rules, I think they could just... Um, have a majority to to expel him also. So, you know, I think they there could be an easier way. And could I just add really quickly that yesterday I mispronounced the last name of Rick Carfagna, one of the possible successors as, as speaker, and I just wanted to apologize for that. If you were on the House and this came up and you had not known about it, wouldn't you be in a rush to fix it? Wouldn't you, like, as soon as this came up, be meeting with leaders and saying, come on, we're terribly stained. We're all tainted by this. We're all running for re-election. I I'm surprised it's a week later and there's no resolution for this. I don't know. Maybe they're, they're just shell-shocked. They don't, you know, they're, they're paralyzed, as I've said before. And they're also thinking about their re-election. And, you know, Householder was kind of the keeper of the campaign money, you know, so they're all probably like, oh, my God, what do we do about our elections? And the yeah, team know, Householder's uh, certainly got a lot of money. That story yeah. that we had showing who all those people were, he gave out quite a bit of money mm -hmm. for what are pretty minor races. Well, it'll be interesting to see if they move. Uh, yeah, I mean, the governor has called on them to get him out of there. Some of them have talked about it, but so far they are stagnant. It's this week in the CLE. How big of a deal is it that a lawyer has filed what he hopes will be a class action lawsuit against First Energy for customers who have lost some money because of the state house bribery scandal? Chris Ranowski, Corey Schaefer put this story together yesterday. There's a lawyer in Columbus that's working to represent a whole lot of interests. What's his theory? And he had some very colorful language in his filing. Actually, he's a Sandusky-based attorney. I want to clarify that. He's actually the same attorney who he's representing the young man who was shot in the eye during the May 30th protests in Cleveland, Dennis Murray Jr. But he found uh, there was a, a homeowner in North Royalton who filed suit against First Energy. And, and to be honest, we've actually kind of, I mean, this was coming. Like we knew it was only a matter of time before lawsuits started getting filed. This one is essentially addresses the 
the monthly surcharge that House Bill 6 required every Ohio customer to pay, which ranged from like 85 cents for residential customers to like $2,400 for large industrial plants. And it also stripped requirements that traditional utility companies generate a certain percentage of their power that they provide for renewable energy. So this complaint that was filed in the U.S. District Court in Columbus asks a judge to grant class action status, which means you know, anybody, any customer of, uh, of First Energy who feels wronged by this racketeering allegation against Larry Householder and company could join this suit if a judge says that this is worthy of being a class action lawsuit. It seems like it's going to end up being pretty worthy, right? I mean, this was a, a bailout born of corruption. We all, all the ratepayers are yeah, providing I mean, everybody... cash for it. So, you know, it's not a lot of money that the individual customers would get back. The lawyers would get a big payday. But it's almost like, you know, this lawyer isn't trusting the legislature to repeal and do the right thing. And so he's seeking the courts to right the ship. Right. And and we had we had written before that there may be also additional litigation related to shareholders also may have separate claims outside of this. But this is this is the first sort of consumer legal action that we'll see against this. You'll probably see others uh, that are similar to this. I think, you know, what you see when when stuff like this happens, especially with big companies like First Energy, is you see attorneys sort of scrambling to be the first to to get the lawsuit filed because you're right it does represent a pretty big payday for the attorneys uh so we'll see how this plays out we'll be following this one you know we should have a an answer here in a couple of weeks you know the judge will decide whether this is a a class action or not can you imagine what the mood is inside first energy's house i got an email from a guy uh, i think it was yesterday saying you're doing a disservice to First Energy. You're, you're, you're ignoring the people that go out and put their lives on the line to keep the power flowing and, and all the jobs that are. It's like, what don't you get about this? This was well, and a billion dollar for- bailout that was born of corruption. That's what the story is. Also, you don't give, give credit to a company for doing what it's supposed to do. Right. Like, right. like, like look, this could be a public service. It's not a public they're a private company. We pay them money and they're supposed to do stuff like keep the lights on, fix the power lines. That's your job. So, you know, there's no on the back for all of the good that First Energy puts into the world. I'm yeah. sorry. That's, and they said they give money to nonprofits. It's like, yeah, it's money that they got now, you know, what looks like illegally. So we'll see. Have to go. We'll see. Have to see how it goes. It's this week in the CLE. Is someone spraying swastikas on Jewish businesses and concerns in University Heights? Chris Ranowski, in this year of social unrest, of course, we're seeing swastikas on Jewish businesses in University Heights. This is the year of just incredibly bad news. What What's the story with this? Well, you, you say a year. I say three and a half years, but that's, <laughs> you know, potato, potato. Um, yeah, so uh, a bunch of uh, businesses in University Heights said, that they discovered anti-Semitic graffiti, one of them being the Waxman Torah Center on South Green Road and near Cedar Road and University Heights. Two other businesses in the same plaza, Micah's Wig Shop and Friedman, Levitt and Associates Accounting Firm, uh, were all tagged with graffiti. And there was a swastika and a bunch of other stuff that was painted on there. And 
it, it's, I don't know. It's, it, it's varying. It's, 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 it's interesting that there was some anti-police stuff on there too, because that just doesn't like, that doesn't compute with, with, you know, how traditional thinking about this stuff, but um, this rises above though, the normal tagging and graffiti you see, because there've been so many attacks on Jewish temples and Jewish congregations that when this shows up, it raises a serious alarm. Like are, are there anti-Semitic people about and what could that manifest itself as? So it seems like police are taking this very seriously to figure out who did it, what their motives are and, and whether something is budding, but, but it's worth focusing on because. Yeah. They're currently looking for surveillance video. I mean, this is, it's an ugliness that we've seen a lot of, you know, over the past few years and, and, you know, not just a rise in anti-Semitism, but in, in just straight up racism and, and, you know, it's, I just like, I, sometimes I'm speechless about this stuff because it's like, how, how much more can you say about how awful it is to sort of live and see all of this come back out again and all of, and, and, you know, people having to go out and fight these fights and, and really to, to see how it's all stoked and, and, and how it's just unchecked on social media by these giant companies that don't care. It's, it, it's, it's really mind boggling and really kind of sad. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Well, that does it. It's the newsiest Tuesday episode we've had in a while. Usually Mondays are news doldrums, not this week. I wonder what the rest of the week will, will be like. We do have a Mike DeWine briefing today, I believe. Right, Jane? Yes, we do. And we'll see what he has to say. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Chris. Thanks to everybody for listening to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back tomorrow. Mm-hmm.